is printed. At least the, uh, the text is, the scripture is printed for you in the bulletin. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, I'm sure we can find you one. Should be a few lying around. Uh, before we start, let me, let me pray for us. Our God and Father in heaven, we uh, give you thanks this morning for the good news of the gospel, that you have uh, sent your son to do the work that we couldn't have done ourselves, to fulfill the law, to uh, pay the penalty for our sin by taking our punishment on the cross for us and by being raised to new life to give us the gift that we could never earn for ourselves. We thank you that you are a God of grace and of mercy, willing to come and rescue and reconcile and redeem a totally undeserving people like us. Father, would you uh, this morning remind us of both your holiness that would bring to mind and bring to heart the fact that we could never stand before you in our own name by our own works. Would you also uh, convince us more fully of your mercy and grace that Jesus Christ has done what we couldn't have done, what we should have but have failed to do that in him we have full forgiveness, in him we have full acceptance, that you have made us lovely by his work, and for this we thank you. And Father, we pray this morning as well for uh, the leadership of Hope Church, for Nate, for uh, his preaching and teaching ministry, that it would be edifying to these people, that they would uh, grow in the grace and the knowledge of your son, that this family that you have gathered here to worship you today would, uh, they would see themselves as the church, not merely congregating in a building one day a week, but uh, as a family on mission together, uh, under one head, one Lord, and one Father. And Father, would you give the session of this church and the, the deacons wisdom to serve and to edify this church. Father, we thank you that all of this rests in your hands as we've been reminded this morning through the prayers of uh, Bob. We thank you that you are building your church and that nothing can stand in its way, that you have absolutely guaranteed everlasting life and hope for every single person who repents of sin and turns to Christ for forgiveness. Thank you for this. Father, as uh, we've also prayed this morning, we ask that you would give wisdom to uh, our, our city's leaders, uh, to Mayor John Romano, that you would give him wisdom and godliness and, and dignity as he goes about the work of leading the city as he has for so many years. Father, would you bless him in his work in order that 
this city would flourish, that we would have uh, peace, that we would have um, economic success in order that we might be a greater blessing to those around us. Father, I pray for the board of trustees. I pray for the, the village clerk. Father, for all who uh, help Falston Spa and the surrounding area uh, be governed well and wisely, I pray that above all things, Lord, that you would convince them of their need, their desperate need for a Savior, that they would turn to you and find uh, their hope and their life in you. And Father, as we continue to pray for our leaders, uh, also the other two prominent people from New York who are campaigning right now for the presidency. Father, uh, humility doesn't often come to us through politicians. And we pray that this, uh, this would be different. Father, that you would humble the leaders, that you would uh, be gracious to them and to us by giving us uh, here in the state of New York and in this country uh, leaders who actually consider themselves uh, under your leadership, that they would see right leadership as leadership that is always under your leadership. Father, bless us in this way, we pray, knowing that even if these things don't occur, you are sovereign over all, you have a good and wise way of dealing with us. So we thank you and we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. All right, let's uh, read the sermon passage for today. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. Can everybody hear me? Yeah? Okay. I turned the mic off because it was kind of fuzzy. So let's read. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes this. Therefore, I urge you, first of all, to make requests or supplications prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and pleasing before God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the appointed time. To this, I have been appointed a preacher and apostle. I tell you the truth, I do not lie, a teacher to the nations, to the Gentiles, in peace and in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Um, okay, one of one of the things that, uh, as I've been involved in discipleship ministries, as I've gotten to know Christians, especially younger men, growing up, uh, one of the things that is possibly the scariest, possibly the most daunting, 
thing that, that we all know as Christians we ought to be involved in, but for various reasons find ourselves lacking, is in the area of mission. We know that uh, the good news is worth sharing with people, but we're afraid. We're afraid of what they might think. We're afraid that we'll be considered foolish. We're afraid of hostility from an increasingly secular culture. We know that uh, Jesus is worth being considered foolish for. And yet, when the opportunities come, we oftentimes are paralyzed. We don't feel like we are the ones who are prepared enough, equipped enough uh, with a knowledge of the gospel, with a knowledge of the scriptures to be that person to speak into that other person's life with this good news. Follow me there? Have you felt that? Have you felt the, the daunting task of what it means to, to engage somebody who is in their heart and in their mind hostile to God? And it's, it's seriously scary at times. And um, what Paul gives here to Timothy uh, teaches us quite a lot about how to engage in mission. And the very first thing that he puts forward before us is that in every sense, mission is fueled by prayer. Okay? Which I think is the second scariest thing to Christians when... It, when you talk to them about prayer, because everybody feels convicted when you talk about prayer because they're not doing it enough. <laughs> okay, but this is not going to be the sermon that, that guilt trips you into thinking you need to pray enough. I know you need to pray more. Uh, I need to pray more. This is a sermon talking about uh, mission. And how do, we, how do we get past the obstacles that arise in our hearts that prevent us from actually sharing the good news of Christ with other people. Okay, so we're going to look in this passage, we're going to see um, three things. Who do we pray for? We're going to see why we pray. And we're going to see uh, how we pray, or, or what is the power by which we actually pray. Okay, so the who, the why, and the how of prayer. Look uh, at verse 1. It says, Therefore I urge you, first of all, that you make requests, or your translation may say supplication, petitions for people, prayers for people, intercessions for them, and thanksgivings. And who does it say that we're supposed to be doing this for? All people, all men, including women. It's mankind. Right? So, so think about this. He is urging us of first importance. In other words, this is urgent that we pray. And that we pray not just for those we love, not just for our families, not just for our children, not just for our coworkers or our friends, but for all men, all women. Which means Paul is teaching Timothy something very important about missions. That if you want to be a light in a dark, dark world, you're going to have to pray for your enemies, for all men. For those who love you back and those who don't. Now, that's probably one of the hardest things that Paul could ever ask of anyone, isn't it? To pray for your enemies. And, and it gets even more specific because he doesn't just say pray for them like, uh, Lord, I pray for Nick 
that big jerk. I pray that you would crush him. I pray imprecatory prayers against Nick. He's not just saying generally pray as if you can pray in any old way. He's saying pray requests, supplications. In other words, what are Nick's needs? What are the ways in which his life is difficult or lacking in some way? What are the circumstances he is facing? Pray for those things. And, and the second word uh, is a more general word for prayer. But even in this more general description of prayer, you know, he says supplications and prayers, you get the hint that he's asking you to, to pray with your whole life, your whole body, not just throughout the course of your day when Nick is called to mind, you say, oh, God, I, I pray for Nick. But to go into your prayer closet, to get on your knees to pray for Nick, to dedicate a certain part of your day to pray for him. Right? He also says to make intercession what are the things that Nick is struggling with? Where is he trapped in sin? Where is he not uh, believing the gospel? Intercede between God and even your enemies. See? As well, give thanks for that big jerk. Give thanks. Right? If prayer is not only meant to, uh, uh, in some way, change the world around us, but it's also meant to change us, then one of the best ways, if especially if you are being urged, first of all, to pray for even your enemies, that you would give thanks for him. What does that force you to do? It forces you to start thinking not just about how bitter you are, about all the things he's done to you, right? all of the things she's said about you, but it forces you to give thanks for the, the elements of common grace that that person has experienced and that you can be genuinely thankful for in their life. That's where the beginnings of heart transformation begin. Okay, So he's saying pray indiscriminately. Pray for everybody, not just your friends, not just your family, but everybody. And as if he wants to drive that point all the way home, he says, yes, for kings and all who are in high places too. Even the politicians, even pray for them. Right? Which I loved hearing us pray in our, in our time of congregational prayer, to hear us pray for this country and for our leaders. It's fantastic. It shows a heart for the gospel, a dependency on, on the Lord. It's fantastic. So, he's calling us to pray for all men, including those in authority over us, in government. And uh, then, in the next verse, he says this. Look at uh, halfway through verse 2. Why are we praying for them? In order that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, uh, you may know, I certainly know, many people who take this, this passage right here, to uh, establish 
that the reason why we pray for kings, for presidents, for governors, for mayors, is so that we can sit back and relax. We can have a nice, quiet life, a nice, peaceful life, and uh, not be troubled in this world. Now, if that were true, if that were really what Paul was urging Timothy to pray for, he wouldn't have ended that sentence the way that he does. We've got to keep reading. Okay? We're praying for a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Why? So that we can sit back in our lazy boys and enjoy a nice, refreshing Presbyterian drink? Or, or, what Paul says, he says, this is good and pleasing before God our Father, who desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we be praying for peace? Why should we be praying for quiet? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of mission, so that we wouldn't have persecution unnecessarily stopping us from that message going forth and God's grace being known by all kinds of people. So when he's talking about peace and quiet, he's not talking about moving from New York City to Boston Spa so that you don't have the hustle and bustle of, uh, what is it, 11 million people in New York City, something like that, right? Versus 5,000 Boston Spa, right? Relatively quiet and peaceful compared to New York. What Paul is saying here to Timothy can apply to somebody living in New York just as well as it could here. Because he's not talking about the hustle and bustle of everyday life. He's talking about interpersonal peace and quiet. Are you the type of person who is praying for the relationships around you so that you are not unnecessarily offensive, unnecessarily hostile to people around you in order that they might come to a knowledge of the truth in order that God would save them. See, one of the things that stops non-Christians from even considering the gospel, from even considering Christianity, is oftentimes Christians. Isn't that true? I mean, uh, Gandhi himself was very attracted to Jesus. In fact, even as a Hindu, he said he modeled most of his ethical life off of Jesus Christ. As a Hindu, he just said he had no patience for Christians. Right? When Paul is urging Timothy and us to pray for peace and quiet, he's urging us to pray for our relationships with one another, our relationships with outsiders, our relationships with those who love us and those who don't, in order that through our lives, they might experience the love of God. And through our words, they might encounter the word of God. That's what he's talking about. You can do that just as well if you're in New York City or if you're in Boston Spa. It has nothing to do with traffic, in other words. So this is an urgent declaration that we ought to pray for the sake of mission. 
And as we think about praying for all men in order that we might lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity, we have to recognize that within ourselves there are a number of obstacles to us going out on mission, us desiring to pray for these people. And so, you know, Paul knows, Paul knows the inner workings of the human heart. He knows that we oftentimes don't desire to pray, especially not for those people. We love to elevate ourselves self-righteously. We love to keep people at arm's length to protect ourselves. And he knows that the only thing that is going to break into those kinds of self-righteous, uh, hardened hearts is the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus came and he gave his life as a ransom for us. And so he continues and he says, here is what is going to make you uh, an absolute warrior in prayer for even the people you don't like. This is what is going to immobilize you. Not immobilize you, mobilize you. This is what is going to uh, motivate you, energize you, get you passionate about missions, about going out and doing for other people what they don't deserve you to do for them, is that God did that for you. Look with me at verse 5 and following. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean that, that Jesus is our mediator? I imagine that even in this room this morning, there are some of us here who uh, have grown up in and around uh, Christianity. We've grown up with the understanding that God is love that he's a gracious God, that uh, in many ways we've lived decent and respectable lives. And maybe that's why God has chosen us. And maybe that's why God has set his love on us. But the whole notion of us having a mediator destroys that kind of thinking. Because a mediator is one who stands between us and God. In other words, there's a chasm. There's a problem. We cannot come before God in our own name and by our own works. We're not able to do so. If we were to do so, well, in the Old Testament, we have many examples of when men would encounter the angel of the Lord or some sort of other uh, maybe uh, manifestation of God's holiness. And, and of course, they very self-confidently puff their chests up and enjoy his presence, don't they? No. <laughs> what happens? They hit the deck, right? They, they encounter the angel of the Lord, and they're on their knees. They're saying, I am unworthy. I can't stand before you, right? There is a chasm between sinful man and holy God that absolutely needs a mediator. And the, the fact of the matter is that God has sent us one. And he's not just mediating as if uh, we speak to Jesus and Jesus speaks to the Father and that's how we have dialogue. 
No, it says he gave himself as a ransom. He bought us for a price. We who have rebelled against God, we who have uh, sullied our hearts, our souls, who have blood on our hands, who owe God absolute, perfect obedience, and who have not given it to him. Jesus has come, and he has paid that ransom. Think about it. What is a ransom? What is a ransom? It's what, uh, if you have been taken captive, your captors demand for your release. If you've been taken captive, it's what your captors demand for your release. In other words, what Paul is saying to us here by, by calling Jesus our ransom is he's saying every single one of us has been sold into sin and is captive to it. We are, uh, by nature and by practice, we are under the law of God, and it's not good for us because we've sinned against it. We are captives. We are at the mercy of what rules our hearts. We are captives. And yet, Jesus has come, and he has paid that ransom with his life, which means freedom, right? If you pay the ransom, then the captives are set free. And yet, the kind of freedom that we're talking about here is not the freedom that we might think of in, in the world, as if we are able to then just go and live our lives any old way. And it's very interesting the way that the Bible talks about freedom, because when the Bible talks about freedom, it means the transfer of captivity from an evil and oppressive Lord of your life, sin, Satan, right, to freedom, which means captivity, to a good and loving and benevolent Lord of your life. You don't go from captivity to absolute autonomous freedom. You go from captivity to an evil ruler to captivity to a benevolent one. It's fantastic. To obey him is to obey him and receive life. To live for him means to receive joy and hope and blessing. That's the kind of freedom we're talking about that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for. It's the sort of thing that can push us out, like Paul, to be an apostle, one who is sent to the nations, to the Gentiles, in faith and in truth. See? Now, uh, if we are going to be the type of people, be the type of church that uh, goes, the type of church who is willing, like Jesus was willing, to leave the comforts of his home and to go into a world wrecked by sin and to be incarnate among people who were wrecking themselves and one another with sin. If we're going to be that kind of people, we need to first learn that Jesus Christ was a ransom for us. That our sin was so bad, in other words, that he couldn't merely forget about it. God couldn't merely turn his back on our sin. His son had to die 
And yet, at the same time, at the exact same time as our sin was so bad that he had to give his life, it says he gave himself as a ransom, willingly, out of love for the unlovable. God gave himself as a ransom for you and for me. That is good news. That will pummel you down into the dirt to know that you are so sinful that the Son of God had to die to forgive you. And yet, it will raise you up into the clouds knowing that he has set his love on you, that, that you were worth him leaving the treasure of heaven, giving up everything in order that he might have you. Let that be the motivation to, when you're encountering somebody and you're fearful that they'll think you're foolish, that you'll lose their approval if you speak to them about Christ. Let that be a comfort to you knowing that you have the approval of the infinite God. Why do you care about whether they approve of you? If you feel paralyzed and you don't know what to say, just say what you know. The Lord will do his work. He has been for thousands of years. The Lord will do his work. See, one of the things that I, I'm convinced is, uh, is so essential to being missional people, to being uh, what we might call evangelists, is to recognize that every single one of us already is an evangelist. We evangelize for whatever it is that has captured our hearts. Right? When I was working in South Korea, I was teaching English there, uh, one of my coworkers was a girl from uh, the Niagara Falls area, not a Christian. And uh, every time we would try and bring up spiritual things with her, she would very quickly shut it down or, or uh, turn the conversation in a different direction. She didn't have time for that. She was unimpressed by it. She didn't want to be bothered. Uh, and in our second year working there, she made a trip to Thailand just on her own. She was a photographer. She had a fantastic time in Thailand. And when she came back, for six months straight, I kid you not, six months straight, the thing that would save our lives, the thing that would make our lives worth living was traveling to Thailand. Thailand had captured her heart. She loved it so much, she couldn't help but try and get us to love it the same way that she loved it. That's evangelism. That's all that Jesus is asking us to do, is to be so captivated by what he has done and how he has done it, the, the lengths to which he was willing to go in order to get you, that you would turn around and you would just want to talk about it with everybody. You would just want to share that. And uh, C.S. Lewis uh, makes this comment when he says, uh, we were actually created to do this. He says that uh, when we experience beauty, when we experience the awe of something, that experience is not complete until we turn around and share it with someone else. That's how we were built. And so all that Paul is saying here, 
to us and to Timothy is be so captivated by Christ that you want to fulfill in the telling to other people the awe with which you have experienced. You want to be so enamored and so awe-inspired by what God has done for you that you can't help but turn around and just tell people about it. Now, that's not hard, but it requires transformation. Your heart has been wandering. Your heart has been uh, at the mercy of competition in every avenue of your life. So I ask you this morning, what is it that has truly captivated your heart? Is it Pokemon Go? Is it Thailand? What is it? There's something at the center for which you are living and for which you have become an evangelist. Is it Christ or is it something less? So I'll leave you with this. As we learn for ourselves what it is that God has done for us, and as we learn to share it with others, knowing that their approval is nothing compared to the approval of God, and that our prayers are the motivation and the power and the engine behind all of mission. I'll leave you with this. What is it for Hope Church? What is the next step for us as a church, for us as a body here, that you will be reaching out to your communities, uh, sharing the good news of why you're here this morning with those who are not here this morning? What is the next step? Will it be to take a more uh, engaged lifestyle in your community? Will it be to commit to greater discipleship within the church? Will it be to uh, learn the scriptures better for yourself so that you're better equipped to share them with another when you have opportunity? What is it? How are you going to use your time and your talent and your treasure? In other words, the scheduling and priority that you have uh, for your own life day to day. How are you going to use the uh, measure of abundance that God has given you to bless others? And how are you going to use your God-given gifting for the sake of Christ in Boston Spa and around the world? I hope that uh, as Nate helps to lead uh, Hope Church and as the session helps to lead Hope Church, that uh, you can come up with a, a very good, very solid way forward. I've been very encouraged to hear from Nate the way that you've loved on him and his family. I've been very encouraged by reading your missions board out there to know that you are supporting missionaries around the world. And I want to encourage you to keep going, to go strong. It is of urgent importance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your son who gave himself as a ransom for us who are sold into sin and into slavery, and you have purchased us back. We belong to you. We pray that as uh, we think individually and corporately about how we can be a greater blessing to those around us, that you would remind us that uh, there is no such thing as failure when we have a sovereign Lord who 
is directing all things. We can just try and move out in faith, knowing that there is nothing left to prove, nothing left to earn. You have done it for us. Now allow that to be our motivation to go out and to love those who don't yet know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I believe we are now going to stand for our hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues. <laughs> <laughs>